This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. And welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Bob, and welcome to part two of 8th edition 101, the movement phase. A series where we're going to talk about the different phases of the game, break them down for you guys to increase your knowledge of the game, and ho- hopefully let you guys win a couple more games. With me, I brought Mr. Michael Snyder and Brandon Grant. Hello. Hello, everyone. And if you don't know, if you if you don't know Brandon Grant, uh, he's won quite a bit of events. He's he's been a big name last the last couple years in the 40k tournament community. Uh, he's a player with a lot of accolades. He's made the finals Delvio, and he's also a teammate and a member of Relentless D and a good friend of mine. And then Michael Snyder, who I have mentioned on this podcast a few times before in the past, is a perennial top niner, uh, meaning he, meaning he's made the top nine at a number of events and been just short of of always winning the big ones. Though he has won his own fair share of events uh, in terms of the big events like the LVO, Nova, etc. Mike usually performs really well, uh, but he hasn't won any of those big games yet. Uh, and he's also one of the better players I know personally. Yeah, I'm that perennial five and one, four and one type player. Can't quite get over the edge. It's 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 simply because Michael, you play Necrons and Tyranids. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we're going to talk about the moving phase today, guys. But before we do that, I have a couple announcements I want to make. The first being, uh, I would like to apologize for last week's debacle. Uh, there was a bit of discussion about the definition of a take-all-comers list, and I think a lot of it was kind of lost. Uh, A lot of the discussion was kind of lost and spent in that, so I do apologize about that. Basically what happened was uh, Steve, I wanted Steve to come on the episode before, uh, but it was a last-minute decision, uh, so it was error in preparation on my part, um, which basically meant Steve wasn't up to speed on the topic and what we're going to talk about. And lo and behold, the first thing uh, he mentioned was he challenged our definition of a take-all-comers list, which I actually think was was kind of smart and spot-on in terms of what he thought a take-all-comers list was and what it meant for the meta. But eventually what was happening is it was lost in translation, and uh, we talked less about building a take-all-comers list and more about what a take-all-comers list is. So I'd still just suggest taking that episode out. It was a really good episode. There's a lot of really good tournament insight and talk. Uh, though it's less m- about building a take-all-comers list and more about what a take-all-comers list is and kind of like how to how to prepare against it and what it means for the meta, etc. It's still a really good episode, just not quite how to build a take-all-comers list. 
which leads me to my second announcement. Uh, the first being I'm going to or I'm going to build a take all or not build. I'm going to re-record that podcast with uh, building take all comers list in mind. So we're going to redo that podcast. And also we're going to talk about tournament coverage. There's going to be a bonus episode. Uh, enough people ask me about it. I know you guys really like that tournament coverage, but this is more of an evergreen series meant to bring people back into eighth edition or to bring people back to these episodes as they traverse through their eighth edition careers. So this is going to be more of an evergreen episode where we talk less about dates and tournament coverage uh, and, and more of those rele- time relevant things and more about true evergreen things that should hopefully always be true throughout 8th edition's life period. So we're going to have a special bonus uh, tournament coverage episode that's going to come probably next week, Monday or Tuesday, around the same time this episode comes on. I haven't decided yet, uh, but that's going to feature some great guys. We're going to talk a lot of tournament stuff. It's going to be all meta analysis, tournament news. should be a lot of fun. I'm really excited. Anyways, back to the topic at hand, the movement phase. So... We were talking about this a little bit before the episode started, and I think we came to the conclusion that the movement phase is probably the most important phase of the game. Uh, you could probably make an argument for another phase. Uh, I, I know the charge phase or the whole assault phase, charge and fight phase is very, very important as well. However, the movement phase is the only phase you can win the game on without having to roll a single die. And that's very, very important because removing that variance from the game leaves all of the decisions on the player. Uh, which means if the player messes up in the movement phase, you can't blame the dice. So you have to really know your stuff. And uh, Brandon, I know you've got some great points on this. Why else is the movement phase so important? So at its core, you need to understand how to win the game, and you win the game by scoring points. Generally, you win by scoring points by destroying enemy units in the ITC missions, and most importantly, by controlling objectives. And the objectives generally start outside of your deployment zone, you're going to need to move your models around to control them, and you're going to need to control space. So understanding the movement phase and how to uh, build a board control style element into your list can ensure that you're either controlling objectives in the beginning, middle, or end of the game. And even before our podcast, we were discussing a game from years ago that Michael had played that illustrated the board control concept perfectly. Uh, yeah, I was. Um, this is back in seventh edition, so the ITC missions were a little different, but the the core concepts are still applicable today. Um, I was playing a Necron army against a bunch of Tau, and they had five Riptides and three Ghost Kills and all the shooting that needed line of sight in the world. Um, but it was an ITC kind of standard look and terrain, you know, LVO standard where there's two L's roughly central. Um, uh, at the time we each got to set up objectives so i um i was able to set up three objectives well two of the objectives uh near one of the l's my opponent had also happened to place uh an objective within say eight inches or so of that same l um so i basically parked my necron army there turn one uh and passed it on to his turn um he shot me a little bit with some of his ignores line of sight and then i didn't move because I was controlling three of the four objectives and I did not think he would be able to kill me before we ran out of time, uh, before the turns were up. So that's, you know, my opponent just looked at me flabbergasted. Why didn't it, you know, charge at him on bot or top of two? And I I just, 
I looked at him back and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm winning. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> um, and I think that that concept of, of who has the initiative and who needs to make plays is important. You need to be able to, to read that because that will inform all of your decisions in the movement phase. Yeah, initiative is an interesting concept, and I can elaborate on that a little more. Um, basically, the player who has the initiative is the player who has to change the game state if they want to hope to win. So in Michael's case, he didn't have the initiative, even though he was a melee Necron army, because as long as the board didn't change, he had more objectives, so he didn't need to move. And he wasn't expecting to lose very many models because he was out of line of sight. So there was absolutely no reason for Michael to change the game state, and it was up to the Tau player to do something to change the game. So unfortunately, he didn't have the tools necessary, it sounds like, to change the game state effectively, so he lost. Um, but there are ways you play in general if you have the initiative and if you don't have the initiative. So Michael actually had another good example when he was playing an orc player who used that 7th edition relic, uh, the one that you can keep rolling over and over and over again. Michael, do you remember what I'm talking so, about? So so before you go into that, Mike, I, I want to piggyback a little bit more on what Brandon said, uh, because I think I think it's very important. It's actually Brandon's thing going to elaborate on this a little bit more later in the episode. But the reason that Tau player lost is they they essentially didn't move. They essentially had the initiative and didn't do anything with it. And the reason why that's important and why I'm mentioning that is because gunline armies tend to do that often, right? That's It's a pitfall that a lot of gunline players, Tau, Guard specifically, looking at you guys, uh, you guys don't utilize your movement phase effectively enough. Uh, and I see a lot of Guard lines look the same on turn 7 as they did on turn 1. Uh, so just, just wanted to mention that real quickly right off the bat. And I don't think that in that particular game there was much he could have done. Um you know, with the L-shaped ruins and with an army that has no melee and no psychic, there really wasn't a lot he could do to threaten 12 wraiths sitting inside a building that he couldn't shoot at. Um, but, but yeah, the, the idea is, is, is valid. You know, you, he needed to find something. He just didn't bring anything in his army that could handle that situation. Okay. So, so what about this orc, this orc game you, Brandon mentioned? So, So to set it up the way I remember it, um, Michael was slightly behind and it was devolving into this brutal combat and the orc player's war boss had this relic where he could keep re-rolling and as long as he didn't fail too many re-rolls he'd be fine the old boss pull I think <sighs> is that what it was called you know I do not recall this game I'm sorry regardless Brandon. of what happened the way <laughs> I remember it is this player was ahead slightly over Mike and he used this risky relic for a reroll to keep doing more damage to Michael and failed this roll on a 2+, which resulted in him removing his war boss and handing Michael the game. When you do have the initiative, it's okay to take risks. You're playing from behind. If you don't make plays, you're going to lose the game. In this case, the orc player didn't have the initiative. He was ahead of Michael in this case. And there was no reason for him to take an enormous risk with this reroll because if he didn't take the reroll and didn't succeed on this roll, he was still winning the game. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. That I agree. The he probably should have just left his war boss alone, or I guess uh, 
he didn't need to pile on damage. I think right. is the point. You know, adding a reroll to to add more damage to a squad that isn't relevant if you're already ahead doesn't make sense. Right. Um. So, so uh, let let's go and rewind back here a little bit. I feel like I feel like we're talking about these these uh, game examples and they they are hmm. very important. But I want to talk a little bit more about the basics of the movement phase uh, for newer players. So. Yeah. Before we go on to uh, how to use your army in the movement phase and how to win in the movement phase, uh, I want to talk about three things in the movement phase that you guys need to learn how to learn how to interact with um, that people can use effectively to their advantage all the time. So the first is is terrain and scenery. Uh, I'll let Mike and Brand, Dan, Brandon elaborate on this a little bit, but the basic concept that I'm thinking in my mind is that when you're moving when you're moving in the movement phase, uh, a lot of times terrain. A lot of times players like to use the terrain a little too much. And so I, I see players a lot of time either using their move, their full movement to get into terrain or putting units in horrible position to kind of be in terrain because of just, I don't know, I don't know if it's like human nature, but I always see players like going into the terrain to protect their models, even though they're like space marines with a three up armor save. Um, but the, the movement phase and the game doesn't really revolve around the terrain as much as people think it does. Um, so I guess that's kind of like like my first thing is that is when you're in the movement phase, you want to look at how the terrain can help you win. Okay, Pablo is going to take a break here. Yeah. So to elaborate more on what Pablo was talking about, I do think that terrain is very important. I think Michael will agree with me. And I'm not going to launch into a story this time, but uh, the gist of it is that a lot of the terrain in the game tends to be ruins. And ruins have some rules that allow you to ignore the ruins rule that doesn't allow you to move through them. So if you have the infantry keyword or the fly keyword, you can simply ignore the walls of ruins and move through or over them, which is incredibly powerful. And certain terrain pieces, it is incredibly difficult to get through or around them because they're so large. So when you're building your army, be sure to build it with units that can handle a ruin that's L-shaped, that's large, i.e. have the fly keyword, have units that can come in from strange angles from reserves, have indirect fire, um, have the infantry keyword with units that want to be in that L-shaped ruin. Because if you don't, you can end up in a situation where Mike's wraiths are in the L-shaped ruin and you have no way of dealing with them. And towards what Pablo was talking about, you know, newer players can feel... Like they need to be in the terrain because of that plus one save, um, and while that can be valuable, it can also come back to bite you. Um, it's very easy to have a squad that is overextended, um, that allows you know an enemy uh, melee army to get into range with that and use the charge move to gain extra movement and get closer, and then surround that unit so you, they can't be targeted. And that was a unit that was deployed forward into cover that didn't need to be in that cover and actually would have been better served holding back, even if it was in the open, um, because it would have prevented your opponent from from getting that extra movement um, via the charge phase. Yeah. Um, and speaking of charging through terrain, uh, my, my daughter charged right into a piece of table, a table edge, uh, and that, that's what, cry, that was what that crying was. Um, but, but basically, yeah, my, what Mike and Brandon said are completely correct and valid. Um, another thing that, that is important in the movement phase to look at, and this is kind of pre, 
pre-game setup, but I'm going to throw it into the boom phase because it's kind of won and lost in the boom phase, and that's setting up your terrain so that all the models in in the game, even if you're not necessarily running them, can succeed. Uh, and where you guys can actually notice this and where this is very important is on the Nova live stream in 2018. I know I, this wasn't going to be time relevant, but I'm sure this stream's going to be around 20 years from now because the internet is forever. So if you look at the Nova live stream on the GW uh, Twitch stream, or if you have a YouTube video or wherever you can find it, uh, you'll notice that there's these big crates right next to the L shape, the traditional L shape ruins in the center of Nova tables. And you guys, you guys were there at Nova. Um, so they might be similar. I know you guys didn't play. I don't think, I think Brandon played on the GW. Uh, actually, this is the game I'm, I'm about to refer to is actually Brandon and Alex Fennell's <laughs> game when they played. And so, so there was a point when, when the gallant was going around the L shape and there was like not enough room for the gallant to move between the crates and the L shape ruin. And I think Brandon was letting Alex be nice, but traditional raw movement would mean that that gallant would have to move like three inches up to go over the crates and then go across the crates and then move three inches down, cutting its movement by like by essentially by half. Uh, but it looked like they'd either greed on it or or uh, maybe Brandon didn't call Alex on it, but the gallant got its full twelve inch movement instead of what would normally be a six inch movement and got to charge into Brandon's front line. Uh, which gave Brandon a bit of a bit of trouble. Uh, so, so my point here is that you should always look at the terrain and make sure that that all the models can succeed on the table because you don't want to have an unfair advantage for either side. This goes for TOs and new players alike. If you're setting up the terrain with a buddy and you notice that he has a lot of knights or a lot of vehicles, don't set off. You know, don't put ruins so close together so that their rhinos can't squeeze through the buildings like that. That's kind of unfair. Uh, yeah, I thought Nova did a really good job of making sure that the the L-shaped ruins were far enough apart that a knight could squeeze in between them, at least. Um, I didn't feel like any other terrain was so tight that any particular keyword uh, couldn't interact with the board in a meaningful way. Right. Uh, and that's another thing, too, a lot of, you see a lot of players mess up on as well, is when it comes to terrain, uh, if you have if you have even like a basic a basic barrel or gun barrel or, or something, you do have to still move over it. You can't, you know, just move 12 inches straight through it. So so if there's like, for example, a fence, like a two inch high fence in the middle of the table, we'll say, if you have a model that moves 12 inches, you can't actually move 12 inches through the fence. You actually have to go like one inch up and then one inch over and then one inch down and then, well, I guess not one inch down because models can move in any direction. It's just something to keep in mind when you're when you're getting into those little finicky situations where a, an inch or millimeters are very important. Uh, speaking of millimeters and inches being very important, uh, I think Brandon had something that that uh, I thought was very important and valid about the movement phase as well. So when you're discussing the idea of terrain, you also have to discuss the idea of what terrain means uh, and establish communication and uh, report with your opponent as well. And this is also done in the movement phase. Uh, and this is where communication is very, very important. And I'll let Brandon elaborate on that some more. So if you watch any of the games that I've played, um, I tend to communicate a lot with my opponent. And I've definitely annoyed people because they think I'm treating them like an imbecile when I'm doing something super basic, but also talking to myself about what I'm doing. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. Um, 
the whole game of 40k only exists in the heads of the two players who are present at the table, and the models are just there to remind you of what's going on. Um, that's how you can think of it. So, for example, I think a lot of players who've played a few more than a few games have gotten into a situation where they had a unit on an objective, and then it comes to later in the game to score the objective, and they realize that that unit is 3.1 inches away from the objective, and they're not close enough to contest it. That's a problem. And you know, as a player, that you wanted to move the models close enough to hold that objective. In fact, you had plenty of movement to do so, but that model is 3.1 inches away now, and you don't get the objective. Instead, during your movement phase, just explain to your opponent, I'm moving this unit just barely within three inches of this objective. And they say, yeah, sure. Now both of you know that if you come back and you're 3.1 inches away, you are actually 3.0 inches away just in range of the objective. If you do that for everything that you do, so you say, um, I'm advancing this unit, they advance three inches. You put a die next to the unit so you remember. This is important. Um, we'll come back to that later for units that can move twice in a turn for example. Um, anything that you can do to tell your opponent what your intent is during the movement phase is super helpful. Um, and if you can help your opponent during their phase to understand what their intent is while they're moving, um, that can also help. So for example, oh, you're trying to charge this unit? If you do, it looks like you'll have a 7-inch charge. And now you both remember that it was a 7-inch charge before you moved any models. And if you come back and it's an 8-inch charge or a 6-inch charge, you know it was actually a 7-inch charge. Because models in 40k, it's difficult to move them as precisely as you want. Uh, especially in a tournament, people will nudge the table just trying to get behind you. Um, mistakes happen. So the more you can communicate with your opponent and vice versa, the more you can avoid misunderstandings later in the game. The last thing you want to have happen is your opponent goes to move a model and you say, you can't do that. And they say, no, yes, I can. And the model's already been moved. You can never determine what the range actually was. Yeah, I think taking a moment to, to plan out where you expect your models to be and then explaining as you're moving, um, it, it leads to a much friendlier game uh, because there's less risk of confusion um, and it's just it's a lot cleaner it's a lot easier for for you to get along with your opponent you won't you won't run into um, issues where you have a disagreement because models got bumped because dice were rolled and now it doesn't look like something's in range whether that be to an objective or in range to shoot or or what have you um, you know the the worst feeling is is when you you think you've moved to set up your whatever your trap is and then your opponent moves a model and then you didn't explain your trap clearly enough which means that since they've already moved the model you can't go back and fix it anymore it it's too late yeah and and there's there's i think this is a bit of an art form actually i think it's something that brandon is really good at and uh, like he said it, he does tend to annoy his opponent a little bit but when you and your opponent are both communicating and clear about what each building or what each piece of terrain does, uh, what the intent is, it it creates a, a game state that, that's just so pleasant to play in, right? You don't have to worry about a lot of things. Like, for example, when Mike and I play, uh, you, would act, you would actually be able to look at the game and not know what's going on, but we know exactly what's going on because I say, okay, Mike, I moved six inches here. I'm holding an objective, right? And he's like, okay, cool. And then that model won't move for like two turns, but we know it's 
it moved six inches and is on that objective. Pablo, and so, with, with my local people out here in Boise now, I've gotten to the point where sometimes my gene sealers don't make it out of their Ziploc bag <laughs> because we all understand what they're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And it, the the movement phase is, and that that's kind of what the beauty of the movement phase is, is that, as Brandon said, it's a game, it's a phase specifically played in your head. Uh, you don't need to worry about dice. Uh, so the movement phase is mastering the uh, what what models look like or what six inches looks like or what nine inches looks like uh oh specifically what nine inches looks like that's very important we'll get to that later uh mastering all of that all those little intricacies and uh terrain is very very crucial for getting practice games in too you know i I don't know that you need to know exactly what those distances look like if you're being clear with your opponent about your intent i'm not leaving a three inch gap here or i am leaving a six inch gap there or or what have you if you're clear with the intent even if the models are five inches away but you said they were six you know you don't have to know exactly what it looks like you just have to know what it was stated to look like so so i I see where you're coming from uh and and i think you're right for the most part though specifically with me and some of my anecdotes is like when i'm playing with reese for example uh, if i start pre-measuring uh, Reese is going to know what I'm pre-measuring for, right? So in the instances of like range movement, because, you know, every game, I always break down the movement phase and deployment uh, and the game into into basically one, one 24-inch gap between you and your opponent. There's always that 24 inches. So I play really aggressively. And so I measure, or I, I look at all my movements and go, how will it get me 24 inches faster? Celestine's easy. She moves 12 inches and then another 12 inches in the movement phase and she clears basically that deployment zone uh that deployment no man's land zone uh and can be used immediately or effectively right and so when i look at the nine inch moves the six inch moves the 12 inch moves you can always you you always need to kind of know what the ranges are if you're if you're playing a really savvy opponent who who will easily be able to tell what you're trying to do Sure, and I mean that even comes in in deployment. Um, if you have more deployment drops than your opponent, that means that some of your units will be deployed when you know where a hundred percent of your opponent is. Um, so if you hold back something important, say hive guard, and you know they have a three foot range, you can put them where you can say, I am exactly three feet away from that model hiding out of line of sight. Or you can take it a step further and incorporate that you know that they can move five inches and still shoot, albeit with the penalty, and you can put yourself 41 inches away. Um, and that's that's a big deal. I mean, I, I, there are times when your opponent has a model that moves 12 and shoots 24, so you know they have a 36-inch range from where they exist at that time. Um and with the hive guard having a 36 inch range on their gun, you deploy them just outside of it, knowing that you can walk yourself into range and you are absolutely safe from repercussion if your opponent goes before you. Yeah, right. Mike, you're definitely building on a new concept. So we started with effective communication while measuring as precisely as you can so that both of you agree on where the models are and what they're doing. Second is the ability to pre-measure. There's no rule that says you can't get the tape measure out at any point in the game oh, and just measure dis we're... distances. It it looks like we lost Brandon there. It looks like he cut out. Uh, but I think what the concept Brandon's trying to talk about is uh, theater or theater or setting up what the board state looks like between you and your opponent. So, for example, uh, if you pre-measure your opponent's model so that it's 13 inches away and you say, hey, 
your your blood angels captain is 13 inches away that means he won't be able to charge this unit right because he's 13 inches away from it and your opponent says yes uh and so pre-measuring and, and setting up kind of like a theater or board state uh a visual snapshot of the board state is very important uh and you really much can only you pretty much can only do that by pre-measuring um go ahead mike yeah i mean the the movement phase really comes down to before any models move and i know brandon practices this he measures every distance that he's interested in you know he knows he if he needs to screen something you know screen deep strikers out he knows he's within nine inches of every board edge so that you can't fit a deep striker behind you um he knows before he advances any any of his models or before he he moves them forward you know he knows he pre-measures okay i have a guardsman with a two-foot range gun and i move six so what am i what am i within 30 inches of so that if i move six towards it i can shoot um you know, and he's he's also looking ahead to what does my opponent have? What is my opponent going to be able to move? You know, if he has a, a Blood Angels jump pack captain who moves 12 inches and then can charge theoretically up to 12 inches, he knows if he's within two feet of that captain, he's able to be threatened just by it moving forward. Um, I guess Blood Angel captain, there's some other ways they can threaten you that we haven't got to yet, but <laughs> um, just... You know the the idea of of knowing exactly before any models are ever moved, you need to know what the ranges are to various pieces, um, so that you can plan your movement phase appropriately. Yeah, and this is actually why it's it's so important. So we're not going to talk about deep striking yet, but why models that are on the board that can move like thirty or forty plus inches, why those models are so so good and what why for example if you remember seventh edition the eldar jet bikes with ob, the eldar obsec jet bikes were were game winning overused you know like base, basically i think they're probably the arguably the best unit in the game in seventh edition or one of the best um they that's were certainly because, up there <laughs> oh yeah anyways uh the reason why they're so good and why that that their 40 plus inch movement was so powerful was that those Eldar jet bikes were unpredictable. They could move, you know, if you if you take like a, a six inch movement, Space Marine, for example, uh, he can only move six inches in any direction, potentially if there's terrain around. Uh, but he's kind of predictable. You know where that Space Marine is going. He might he might get a little spicy in advance and increase that by like seven or to seven or nine or ten. But in general, that Space Marine model, you know where it's going to go. It, it it's only got a 360 degree circle of between six to 12 inches where it can potentially go. If you if you put a jet bike in the center of the board, uh, predicting where it's going to go, where it can basically go anywhere on the board of relevance because most objectives are placed 12 inches away from the edges just by design uh, in most missions. So or six inches away at least by the from the edges. So you're essentially cutting out a big chunk of the edge of the board from relevancy. So that jet bike in the center of the board can go pretty much anywhere relevant and really throw your game off and kind of your predictions off. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, and, and the difference between move 6 to move 12 is is incredible. Um, just looking at the, the range of possible, possible movements, um, you know, you're, you're going from a circle that's 6 inches to a circle that's 12 inches. That's, you're getting four times as much area that you can cover uh relative to a you know a six inch model um and, and if you can get something fast sitting in the middle of the board you you have the ability to move anywhere um and, and that just gives you so many more options um 
Yeah. And and the, the reason why th- that's actually one of the reasons why uh, mobile units are, are so important in the movement phase uh, and why units with the fly keyword are also very important because of their ability to move around the board unimpeded. And if you're if you're one of those people who you want to play, you want to be be like Mike, for example, and win games in the movement phase without doing much. Uh, I'm actually one of those people. I like that as well. Uh, then you do need those fast fly models that can move anywhere on the board and get anything essentially uh go anywhere on the board and threaten any objective hold anything so uh so th- that's kind of the reason that's kind of the reason uh why the movement phase is also very important um if you if you if you mess up a movement and you have those models those models tend to be a lot more fragile uh think of things like bikes um which are small unit models that that cost more than the average troop uh, if you if you're if you move like for example a full 16 inches and you kind of put yourself in position to be shot at by a unit you didn't see that can be very that can be very uh, bad for you and so you do need to kind of know what your model's limitations are defensively and uh, what the terrain does and what your opponent's models do when they decide they want to shoot and charge and all that um, because it's all about as Brandon said at the beginning it's all about getting uh, board presence and setting up a board state that gives your opponent the initiative so that they have to try and win the game because you're already winning so talking about setting up that position that that puts you in the advantage um, you know and and just having models on the board you know one of the, the common concepts is 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 move blocking or um, basically where you're using your own models to block out where your opponent can be um, you know it it kind of can come in really big when uh when you've got something like an opponent with mortarian and magnus magnus gives mortarian the ability to move again in the psychic phase so you took a model that moves 12 and now you're letting it move another 12 i mean that's two feet of movement for a model that is insanely powerful in melee. Um, so knowing how to counter that that movement is, is really important as far as setting yourself up to win. Um, uh, th- that's actually that's actually a great segue. Uh, we got Brandon Grant, by the way, back. Hello. So say hi to Brandon again. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, so, uh, I, Brandon, I'm going to let you take this away, take this one, but Basically, Mike was talking about the concept of move blocking, and specifically as it pertains to double moving. Um, but I think it, it's important to remember that there's always one inches. There always there always has to be one inch away between your opponent's models and your models in the movement phase, um, which is something you can definitely use to your advantage. That's right. Um, so there's a couple things we were discussing actually um, before we got into this, and one of them was specifically how to block a double moving Mortarian. Uh, generally a bigger base is not a good thing because it's easier to fill space and prevent that model from fitting during the movement phase specifically. So you can actually block Mortarian twice because he moves twice. So if you have, say, a five-man unit of Space Marine Scouts, you can put them just inside 12 inches away from Mortarian during your movement phase. So he has to move on his side of the scouts. He can't fly over the scouts during his movement phase. Oh, you can put him actually quite a bit more. You've got his whole base width that you can be inside of 12, so his base is about 4 inches. Oh, yeah. Um, so you can actually put yourself at the front end of that base, so long as the the 
when he tries to fly over you, if his if the back of his base is still within an inch of the of the back of your then model, then he can't land there. Exactly. Right. So you so, can cost him six inches easily per movement, and yeah, then you basically subtract a little over an inch off his base. But go go on. Brandon, once sorry. you know where he is to land during his first move. You can then know where he would land during his second move as well, and put another unit in similar fashion in another location behind the first. So you can really slow down a double move. In Mike's case, ideally, you can move it from 24 inches of movement to 12 inches of movement by double moving if they were moving both in the same direction that you blocked. More ideally, you'll probably end up making him go sideways or diagonal instead of straight towards where he wants to go. Either way... You can protect your important units by using screening units to remove locations on the board where it's legal for Mortarian to move in the movement and psychic phases. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Pablo. Oh, and, and I was going to say, and remember, while you're doing this, it's important to note that if you do this, you're sacrificing board position to gain immediate board position. So those 10 models that you move out in front of Mortarian, chances are that you're, you're putting them in a position so that they're not going to be supported. They're probably going to die, uh, especially because they're running right at a demon Primarch. Yeah, pretty uh, much so, anything within within 12 inches of him is dead. Right. So so you're, you're sacrificing a unit of 10 infantry squad. Hi, hi, hypothetically, you're sacrificing a blocking unit for immediate impact on your opponent's turn next turn, uh, which means they're not going to be around to help you out bubble wrap later. Uh, th this is actually why horde armies are, are very important. It's something that in eighth edition, uh, it's something that people mention all the time. It's like, oh, horde armies are so good. It it's a horde edition, slow playing, blah blah blah. Uh, but no one ever mentions why they're so good. They're they're good not only because defensively, horde armies are some of the best units in the and I guess armies in the game uh, defensively, but also because of their ability to do exactly that. Uh, guard infantry double moving with their move 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 order, uh and being cheap can move block pretty much anything in the game if you give them if you give them, put them in position to do so uh, at at 40 points a unit or or may, they might go up who knows in two years or something I'm not <laughs> not yeah but you know but, but you get my point is that is that they're cheap move blocking and they're cheap movement phase shenanigans uh, and that's why they're also really really good you know and I think I think we actually I may have jumped the gun a little bit on move blocking because I jumped right to Mortarian. Um, if a model doesn't have fly, you can run to an inch away from it, and it can't go anywhere. There are exceptions so, to that, though, Michael. We were just discussing uh, heroic intervention. Right. So Sure. But that's just it. You, you can go very close to block a unit's movement if it does not have the fly keyword, because they cannot move through enemy models in their movement phase. Yeah, and, and to, to touch on the heroic intervention real quick, because I, I do feel like heroic intervention deserves its own topic, uh, but in the movement phase specifically, in general, you want to stay three pi inches away, 3.14 blah 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 inches away from characters uh, that can hurt you in melee. That That's kind of like a universal movement phase trick uh, that I see people make mistakes all the time on. Um, uh, you know, so just just remember that those Blood Angels captains, those nasty stuff. Unless GW changes the rules for heroic intervention in the next couple of years, uh, you want to stay pie inches away from those nasty melee characters, uh, or you're giving your opponent free melee attacks, which which you never want to do. And don't forget, it's six inches for Space Wolves and for occasional other armies characters with the right uh, war gear or warlord trait. Yeah, that too. 
and and uh, on on that same note, you can use not not just heroic intervention, but you can use things like that to uh, threat ranges, which which Mike a uh, concept Michael talked about briefly. You can use those threat ranges to deter your opponent from moving onto specific spots. So a lot of the time when I'm when I'm setting up um, objectives in missions where you set up your own objectives, I like to put my opponent's objectives on their deployment zones outside of any terrain where they're kind of vulnerable and out in the open and also in kind of weird spots where I know I'm closer to it but if, if my target is a different spot of the board I know I can always threaten that specific objective no matter where I'm going uh, so for example if if you if I have like bolters and I know bolters are really they have 24 inch range they can shoot little troops off of objectives uh, I will always make sure if, as I'm moving my Marines that they're at least within 12, 24 inches of that objective so that they can shoot anything that wants to hold that objective and in turn deterring my opponent from even going there, right? Which is in its own form a way of board control because if you're deterring your opponent from moving in a specific spot, they're, they're not going that specific spot. So you're actually getting more value out of your ranges and your units uh, than normal. So, which is which is powerful. Okay, so I'm. You guys can still hear me, right? Yes. Okay. So I thought at this stage we might move on to uh, different play styles for armies that have different move speeds. So, Pavel, you were discussing earlier how you see so many gunline armies end in their deployment zone at the end of the game. Well, what is right. an effective way to play a slow army like a gunline army versus there's a lot of talk about Eldar Yanari, for example, or Michael plays a fast Gene Steeler army sometimes. So the difference that you might focus on if you're building a faster army. Um, so maybe we can start with how to play a fast army, because that seems like we've been talking about slow armies a little bit. Um, Michael, tell us a little bit about your current army and how it uses a lot of high-speed units to um, put threat over the board. Okay, so I've been running um, Gene Stealers in Kraken. Um, Kraken has the ability to double their advance roll. Um, you also roll three dice and pick the highest, so you're talking 90% chance of getting at least a four. Um, you know, pretty good odds of a 5 or a 6, and with Gene Steelers move 8, that puts them at moving 16 to 20 inches. Um, if you include Swarm Lord, you can do it again after that, uh, so that would be up to 40 inches of movement, um, which really lets you deploy incredibly defensively um, because you know you're going to be able to go 30 inches reliably in the movement phase, well, in the movement and then in Swarm Lord's move again phase. Um, so it lets you, it lets you sit back where, you know, you're maybe hiding out of line of sight and it looks too far away until you do all of the, the stratagem and the move again with the stratagem again. Um, you know, or God forbid your opponent puts something like a unit of scouts or Eldar Rangers anywhere in the middle of the board uh, because Tyranids have an ability after they kill a unit in melee, instead of taking their consolidate of three inches, they can take a movement phase so they can go 20 inches again and then combined with a fight against strat. I mean, it just really, they're able to, 
Gene Stealers are, are second only to Yanari Shining Spears in speed that I'm aware of. Uh, they can move 60 inches in one turn, not counting the charge or fight phase. So right. it's an interesting point you made there, Mike, that I'd like to have you elaborate on a little more. When you have a fast army, it's easier for you to deploy defensively because you're so fast, you can just show up where you want to be regardless of where you start on the table. Um, are there other ways you can deploy defensively? So, for example, I believe you were using Raveners in one of your lists. Yeah, so the the, the ways to be defensive, you can uh, have speed or range because they allow you to be further away. Um, if you're fast, you can run there and punch someone, and if you have longer range, you can sit where you are and, and shoot someone. Um, alternatively, you basically have uh, Deep Strike um, in all of its assorted new rule names. Um, the list Brandon was referring to, I was running a mix of Kraken and Jormungandr. Uh, Jormungandr has a stratagem that allows them to deep strike an infantry squad, um, and so I took a unit of Raveners that allows the Jormungandr units to arrive with them. Um, so I put units like Hiveguard, which are high value but not high durability, and I put them in deep strike so that I knew that they would not die before I got to shoot with them at least once. Um, but when we talk about fast movement, how much faster can you get than placing your models anywhere on the board more than nine from your opponent? That's, that's kind of deceptive, um, Brandon. Uh, obviously, nine inches away is still... is still Obviously, being able to, to deploy anywhere on the board nine inches away from your opponent is still very 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 powerful um it really just depends on the unit uh i know some units for example corn berserkers in a rhino uh with that silly little combo combi plasma trick can potentially go even further with warp time uh and that's just because you're you're using you're using every little trick and advantage to get the most movement out of a unit uh, so for that specific example you would go 12 inches from the rhino because the rhino gets to move 12 inches um, and then you advance the Rhino, and then you get to move another 12 inches from warp time, and then you fire your combi plasma, where if you roll a 1, the Rhino will will remove itself. Actually, you can't uh, advance and shoot. Yeah, I, was I apologize. about to say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right, you're right. But but you move 24 inches from warp time, and then you shoot your combi plasma, hopefully remove the Rhino from the game because of the silly plasma rule that GW hasn't fixed yet. And then your corn berserkers not only get to move three inches away because when you deploy out of a uh, transport, you get to deploy three inches away. But that's not wholly within three inches, so you actually deploy the, the at the tip of, of your base, right? Which is actually an extra three inches plus twenty-eight millimeters or thirty-two millimeters if you put your corn berserkers on thirty-twos, which I know a lot of people do, which adds like another inch ish. Yeah, uh, thirty-two so is just over an inch, and then the other base size twenty-five millimeters, just under an inch. Right, so so you're already moving 28 inches up the board with corn berserkers. Now, I, I granted that that is a little that's a little finicky kind of tip trick that chaos players specifically can use. Uh, but a lot of coaxes have access to weird little different movement phases like that, like transports. Well, and, yeah, transports and are whatnot. incredibly useful. That you know, don't discount the three almost four inches you get. I mean, if you've got a large base size coming out of a transport. You know, I'm looking at things like Gene Stealer Cult Patriarchs are on, I think, 40 or 50 millimeter bases, and they can go in transports, so they can gain almost five inches of movement coming out of that. I mean, it's it's very valuable. 
Right. And and transports also have the benefit of protecting whatever it is that they're carrying inside and also usually being faster than the things they're carrying. Like uh, assault centurions, for simple example. Big, slow, large-based model that loves the idea of a land raider dying on your opponent's turn so it gets an extra five inches or four inches or whatever. Uh, so, uh, but, but but the the reason why I'm mentioning that and, and why Mike was talking about the gene stealers uh, and and the uh, Jesus coming out of the bastions and all that all those random tricks is because you need to know all that stuff for fast armies. You need to know everything. If you if you want to be in your opponent's face as quickly as possible, uh, you need to know nine inches away. Actually, what actually means is uh, nine inches away doesn't just mean nine inches away from your opponent's models. Uh, it also could potentially mean that um, you're you're uh, more than eighteen inches away from models you might want to shoot at. Um, but basically what that means is if you have like a, a 12 inch range gun, um, and your opponent deploys nine inches away from, uh, or, or your opponent deploys so that, that they're pushing you nine inches away, but they're hiding like something you want to shoot at and it's within 12 inches still. Um, I guess that's more of a defensive thing than a, but basically, basically long story short, nine inches is, is something you want it. You always want to be measuring and, and, and marking down some dice and anything, especially if you have a fast army that deep strikes basically it that's where i was going with that and i guess it's important to note that when you're screening at nine inches and there's terrain with vertical verticality you know we're looking at ruins with a second floor um, it's really important that you screen out the top of the ruins so that your opponent can't deep strike there because uh charging and the fly keyword are stupid in this edition <laughs> this might change um, so if you're listening to this in two years and if GW fixed it, possibly, uh, what Mike is referring to is because the fly distance ignores the vertical, the vertical distance, um, you only measure horizontally. So as long as you park your, your deep striker unit more than nine inches away, which if you're sitting on like a 12 inch ruin, like you'll definitely be more than nine inches away from the, the troops on the ground. Uh, if those troops are like three inches away from the building's edge, it's only a three inch charge. And it, it is important that you still measure the diagonal to be within 12 to declare the charge, and then your your actual distance is just the horizontal. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, you're right. So you still have to be within 12 of the unit that you're charging. Yes. Um, but most but most buildings aren't more than 12 inches high. Most buildings are like 8 inches high. I've had it come up, but but yeah, it, it's just something to be aware of. Which is which is funny. I always imagine like not guys not jumping out of the sky, but guys like just jumping right off the building and landing on top of them, like Space Marines and Power Armor, just like ah, body slamming, super it body slamming guardsmen and stuff. Reminds me of Sixth Edition with the fall damage when you could oh, voluntarily yeah. jump off of a ruin. I I, I do remember <laughs> killing specifically kill, trying to kill units from fall damage uh, <laughs> to try and table myself so my opponent wouldn't win. Yeah, I I definitely have tried to kill a one-man scout squad so that my opponent didn't get the kill the next turn. <laughs> uh, but, but, but... <laughs> Sorry for all, the distraction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, oh, old old 6th edition memories, 7th edition memories. Uh, but the the fast army, all that stuff is, is super, super important for fast armies. Um, and and uh mobile units are, are critical uh like like mike said basically that basically to summarize everything if you want to run a fast aggressive style army uh you need a combination of mobility and and uh 
deployment survivability, basically meaning deep strike reserves, transports, hiding your, your units in ruins, and then using your mobility to get into your opponent's face fast anyways. Or maybe not even get to your opponent's face. Sometimes you might just want to put wraiths in an L-shaped building and win the game that way. Um, a lot of games do tend to... Well, actually, I guess we could talk about that now, right, real, real quick, uh, before we go on to Brandon's... Um, Brandon, the way you played more defensive armies. Uh, sometimes the first unit into a ruin is critical in the movement phase. Uh, perfect example, I was playing a game at the Hammer of Wrath, and I put three Blood Angels captains, Smash captains, Mephiston, and Celestine in a ruin in the middle of the board on top of an important objective, and dared my opponent to go in there. But if he had gone first, he would have warp-timed Abaddon in there, probably would have gotten Aramon in there, and definitely would have gotten, like... Like, not a Demon Prince, but but some other big scary Chaos character, because he had a bunch of them. And he would have put them in there, and then it would have been up to me to take the initiative and have to go in there. Uh, and then, you know, that, that requires a lot of really silly things on my part. He could have surrounded them with cultists, making them even harder to deal with. And I would have had to assault those cultists, which would have left me open to counter-assaults, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, the point is, is that when you're playing a fast army, you want to you wanna highlight those key pieces of terrain that you want to get to first. Um, that are critical to your game plan and to winning the game. You know, Brandon and I had a had a game that I think really exemplifies that early on in Eighth Edition. Um, so it's still mostly Index Hammer, um, but I I think the Space Marine Codex was out because I was playing Space Marines at the time. Um, we both had Celestine. I had a lot more melee than he did. He had some uh, a bunch of Astro Militarum tanks, Celestine, and and some stuff. Um, but I was able to. Uh, identify that there was a ruin in the middle of the board that, God forbid, it's those stupid Necron ones um, that don't have any windows in, and, well, don't have any holes, any openings on the first floor, and with ITC rules means you can't see into them on the first floor at all. Um, so I was able to park two two characters with thunder hammers and jump packs, as well as some Catechan Guardsmen in the middle of that building, holding an objective that was dead center, and Brandon didn't have a way to deal with that and from there i was able to threaten you know a 12 inch move plus my shooting or plus my charges you know i held the center of the board and and pushed brandon not just not just that brandon couldn't hold the objective i was on but brandon had to then back away from that building correct yeah and and like there's there's several i can go on and on about how it's important to um to maintain those buildings um but you know, just to emphasize the, just a little bit more, melee units are the reason why, you know, the, that's how you take those those buildings. So if you have a hard time with, like, for example, if you're playing an army uh, that's very slow or you don't have a lot of melee, you just have a lot of shooting, and you're having a hard time getting to units in those buildings, consider adding some melee, some fast melee infantry that can go in there and clear out those buildings. Uh, I had a buddy who I played who was always running guard gunline armies, and then one day he was like, hey Pablo, I brought Celestine because I'm tired of your Celestine going into this building. And he moved his Celestine into a square-shaped building that my Celestine was in, and they had like a wrestling match in an arena, and the Celestines just were just swinging at each other, rolling up invulns, and then eventually my Celestine lost and had to deep strike nine inches out of the building. And so his Celestine was like, victory, now you have to charge me, and then he surrounded it with guardsmen and I couldn't do anything about it. Which is pretty funny, but um, let, let's go ahead and move on to the importance of screening and winning with more defensive-oriented armies. Yeah, uh, and I'm going to defer to Brandon in this because he's an expert. If I can just add to the fast army thing, in summary, what I'm hearing is if you have a fast army, 
you should focus on building your list in such a way where you can deliver the first blow by deploying in such a way that if you go second, you don't just lose. Um, and having enough movement that you can reach out and hit your opponent before they hit you, or get to terrain in the center of the board from which to control the board. So if you can get to the middle before your opponent, and you're fast, you should be able to, you can push your opponent back into their own zone so they're not going to score as many objectives as you, which is all really good stuff. But essentially Correct. think that if you're building a fast army, it's okay to build an army that gives yourself the initiative. And remember our definition. If you have the initiative, you have to change the game state starting from turn one or you're going to lose. But it's fine. You have lots of movement. You can change the game state very easily. So don't be afraid to make a high initiative list if you have lots of mobility. Conversely, if you're building a low mobility list, like something that resembles a gun line, realize that you are building an extremely low initiative list because you will have less of an ability to alter the game state after deployment. So number one, you're going to want abilities that allow you to reach out and interact with the table even though you're not very fast. So for example, um, you might have reserves that can come in and outflank. So even though most of your army is slow, you have uh, some deep striking units or some reserves that are outflanking um, or just a few mobile units sprinkled in so that one objective exactly across from you in the far corner, 72 inches away, you can get to it by the end of the game, even though the rest of your army can't. Number one. Uh, number two, make sure that you have long range on your units. So a basilisk is a great idea or a great example of a very low initiative, low movement, but all around solid ability because it has range to the table and the table next to you, but also ignores line of sight. It, does it do amazing damage? No. Is it extremely tough? It's okay. But it has the ability to reach out and alter the game anywhere on the board. So even though your opponent is in that L-shaped ruin, it can at least interact with them. So indirect fire and long range are great. The other concept is when you're facing a fast army, and by definition you're building an army that's slow, the fast army is always going to be able to hit you before you hit it. Um, especially if you're facing Eldar, it doesn't matter if you go first most of the time because they can use Phantasm for two command points and redeploy up to three of their units. So you thought you were doing an outflank maneuver, and then you go first, and they outflank you. Um, so plenty of mobile armies have abilities that allow them to, as Michael put it, deploy very defensively and still hurt you starting on turn one because they're so fast. So get to the idea that if you're building a slow army, you need to build an army that can take a punch and not just lose. So you're going to want units that are durable. It's okay to have a fast unit that's not durable if it gets the first swing. It's not okay to have a slow unit that's not durable because most likely, if it's the frontline unit anyway, it's going to just die very easily before it gets to impact the game. Um, anything you guys want to add so far? Uh, do you, I, I have a lot to say about the types of screening units, but I have a feeling you're going to cover that a little bit later. So I think I'll just wait patiently. Okay. Yeah, so... I, I'm focused more on countering screens, so... Okay. To find them first. <laughs> so 
Here's what makes an excellent screening unit, because we just determined that if you're building a slow army, you need screens. And screens are just there to absorb your opponent's first blow so that the rest of your slow army has a chance to retaliate. Um, number one, um, in the assault phase, it's possible for a unit to be surrounded in such a way that it cannot retreat from the melee, which means that if your response is a shooting response, and that happens, you can't respond to that unit. So if you don't deploy very well, or you don't take the right kinds of sc screening units, excuse me, then it's possible for your opponent to simply punch you twice before you get to punch them once, which is not good. So there's a couple ways around that. One, take screens that have the fly rule. Um, am I still lagging? Yeah, yeah, you, you were cutting out there a bit. Uh, okay, so, so fly rule for screens. Um, if you have the fly rule, it's impossible for your units to be tied up if they have fly and sufficient movement. They'd have to be completely surrounded, their movement uh, in every direction to be surrounded. It's much harder. So screens with fly are excellent. Um, they can be costly, so sometimes they invalidate the first rule, which is being able to die efficiently, but that's okay if they have fly against certain armies. Um, the so I'm thinking the perfect example of that would be something like a Wave Serpent that is one of the most durable units in the game and has the fly rule to go with some other, you know, being a transport as well. But, but as far as, you know, just a, as a screening unit, it sounds like that that is the perfect unit you're describing. Yeah, and a Laytok or even Yanari Wave Serpent is an excellent choice as a screen. Uh, it's very difficult to kill with shooting from more than 12 inches away, and it's extremely fast, and it's extremely durable. And as screen units, screens by definition don't need to do any damage. They just need to take up space so that when your opponent hits you, you have a chance to retaliate. And generally, when we talk about opponents hitting you, it's with melee. Because um, by definition, you're a low-initiative army at this point, so if your opponent is trying to outshoot you, uh, good luck, because you built a very high-shooting, um, low-initiative army at this point. Because you can't move across the table to hurt your opponent. You need to be able to do it from far away. Um, the other way you can get around it is to bring a melee unit of your own. And the nice part about a low-movement army is you don't necessarily need a very fast melee unit. And that means you can have a melee unit that hits hard and can take a punch, which is really great when your opponent has a lot of shooting. It makes it very difficult for them to remove your melee unit if it's tough. So um, we're talking about counterpunch melee units here, because you can use, for example, Plague Bearers are extremely durable but generally don't do very much damage. So they're an excellent screening unit. Um, but you can take something like Bulgrins if you're guard. They only move six, but you can mix two up armor saves and four plus and vulnerable saves into the unit. And they hit with the strength of uh, auto cannons essentially. So they actually deal decent damage. And they're all around not a bad thing to have when the bag of gene stealers attempts to move through your army, at least you have something that can compete with them in melee. Even if you trade evenly, at least you have options. Um, now, let's take a break from the defensive side and move to some of Mike's strategies for removing or countering screens, 
before we discuss ways to counter the counters to screens. Hold on. I think there's one more screen unit that you forgot to mention uh, real quick. And I, that's the, the forward deployment screen unit. The, uh, the Nurglings, Scouts, Eldar Rangers, Deep Striking, you know, maybe not Deep Striking, but those units that, that get deployed early before the game starts and can deploy out of your deployment zone. Those are especially important, not so much anymore now that Deep Striking has been nerfed, um, you know, in 8th edition, but still very, very important for A, setting up if you need, if you have like things like Mortarian and Celestine that can double move, those units are already in a position to be disposable and also to block the first initial movement of those units. So, so because the, they're starting out of your deployment zone. Uh, and they're also really good at setting up uh, no man lands where your opponent can't deep strike. Uh, so if you have a unit of scouts and then put them 17 and a half or 18 inches away from you, another unit, that's uh, because your opponent can't deep strike and be nine inches away from both units. That's 18 inches where your opponent just can't simply deep strike. Uh, and the same is true for, for outflanking and, and all the weird, basically anything that uses nine inches. Uh, if you keep if you keep 18 inch distances between all your units and slowly spread out across the board, you can effectively stop your opponent from using those abilities uh, outside of their deployment zone. Genius, but well, you, before you, you start, do, Mike, you bring up a good point, right, <laughs> Mike? Let's set up the scenario for you. So I've set up my three squads of scouts that have 18 inches between them and the front of my deployment zone. Now it's your turn, and you have a fast melee army. What do you do? Um, boy. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do the double advance with my unit of gene stealers. Um, I usually have them running in a bastion, so I get my extra three, almost four inches. Um, but let's say I rolled a two as my highest on my advance roll. I had a tournament where that actually happened for like five games in a row. Um, so my double advance, and I'm super excited. Oh, shit, I didn't get actually that far. Um, but you put this nice unit of scouts in front of me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Hold on, doing some math. I'm still within 12 inches of your front line. So I can declare a charge on your front line, and they're about 10 to 12 inches away. And I'm going to charge the scouts, because I moved to immediately adjacent to the scouts, which means I cannot fail my charge. Right. If I roll big, I'm just going to go directly into your front line. And if I roll low... I will go eat the scouts and then use the Tyranid stratagems to move again into your front line and eat some of that. Or, oh man, there's just so much you can do with Tyranids. <laughs> so, um, so basically, that unit so, of scouts is just giving me extra movement uh, because I'm not a deep strike based speed melee army. Um, exactly. It, so <laughs> you're absolutely right, Mike. Uh, and and so this is something that you guys, as as players and listeners, need to be able to identify. Uh, when you go into your game, if your opponent has a lot of deep striking, a lot of uh, shenanigans, maybe a single big based model that can double move like a knight or a primarch, uh, you definitely want to look at your scouts and, and rangers and nurglings, etc. as roadblocks. Uh, but if if your opponent has something like gene stealers, multiple things that can double move, um, seraphim, seraphim can, can actually, if they have a bunch of characters that they want to screen, um, seraphim can reach out and just trap a scout you know the unit the other really bad one is is yunari because it lets them move their unit up shoot your unit of scouts away to automatically give again. soul burst to the unit that they had put adjacent to it um so it really it really comes down to identifying what 
type of speed your opponent has you know it's it's amazing against say blood angels because their their speed is based on their redeploy stratagem um so zoning them out so that you know the redeploy stratagem requires them to be nine inches away so using that zoning ability that pre-game zoning you prevent them from doing that so it's amazing against blood angels and we're it's counterproductive against tyranids or yanari yes yeah, so it really, it, and you really do have to identify your matchups in that in that situation. Uh, but after you've picked your screening unit, what next? So what you'll want to do is during deployment, make sure that whatever threat you're dealing with, when your opponent deals with your screen, that you have the ability to hurt them back. That's your goal. So if you're a slow army you're going to want some melee in it. And let's say you're facing the double L-shaped ruin scenario or the, heaven forbid, Necron ruin with no windows or doors or entrances. And your opponent has put some strong melee unit inside of the center of the board and you can't see it. That's going to happen. So you have to have a plan with your slow army for how to deal with that and how to screen with it. So one way of screening might be prevent your opponent from deep striking into the out-of-line-of-sight terrain turn one. Uh, another thing you might do is build an army that can simply move up the center of the board and move into that ruin, and even if there's a nasty melee unit in there, like corn berserkers or grotesques, that you can deal with at least one of those units inside of ruin that you can't see through. Um, is that making sense... Yes. Okay. Um, specific examples. Again, um, if you're a slow army and your guard, I know I really like Bulgrins. I really like Katachin Infantry. Both of them are reasonable in melee. They're not the best melee units, but they're they're okay. Um, for other armies, if you're Chaos, you have so many options for good melee units. And I see plenty of Chaos armies that have um, screens that they start with so they're either very aggressive screens like alpha legion or they're very defensive screens like plague bearers and you can have really deadly melee characters that can hide behind your screen and not be shot and go and beat up units that are contesting your screens um, so definitely melee characters are strong otherwise slow defensive melee units are strong because again your whole army is slow you're going to want to keep up with your screen and you don't need to be very fast to do that. Um, otherwise, I'm going to reiterate here, do not put your advanced scouts so far forward that if your opponent prevents them from fleeing or uses them as a charging speed bump, you can't respond. You need to be able yeah, to that's respond. The, the perfect you know, example, we originally talked about having those scouts 18 inches in front of your line. At that point, you know, your opponent can surround them, be safe from your shooting, and then next turn move at you, get closer, and, you know, repeat it that way. If those same scouts are nine inches in front of your line or six inches in front of your line and your opponent surrounds them, then your Catechins or your Bulgarian get to walk up and beat the shit out of whatever unit that was. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, I want to caution against, uh, and this is on the subject of, of screens, um, specifically slow screens, uh, and that you don't ever want to you don't ever want to pack your models so tightly together that their movement starts to impede against each other. Um, because remember, you can't 
move on top of your units and you can't actually move through your own units. You still do have to move around and account for all of that. Uh, so, so if you have like, for example, if you have a large unit of 20 plague bears and they're in front of like a greater unclean one that, or maybe not a great, but like a renegade knight, like a melee renegade knight or something, something that can't jump over them. If your opponent either crashes into those plague bears so that they don't get their full movement or impedes their movement somehow with like a thunderfire cannon, uh, you're limiting your, your knight's ability to move too. Uh, which can in turn affect your ability to, if your opponent steal, if your opponent forces you to have to take the initiative because they jump inside a ruin with a with an objective in it, uh, you're you're gonna limit your ability to do that. Uh, so so just keep that in mind. It's the same thing with firing lanes. Uh, a lot of times with these big L-shaped buildings or a lot of these tables now in 8th edition that you see, uh, you create these firing lanes um, where if a unit is in them, you can shoot at them clearly. Uh, but other than that, most units that aren't in those firing lanes can't be shot at. So if you have, if you're like Tau, for example, and you have a large blocks of infantry and, and a couple Riptides, if those infantry are standing in the way of the Riptide so that the Riptide can't move into that firing lane, you might not be able to shoot things that you want to shoot at. And then that might give your opponent the chance to move closer to you or to hide again so so just keep that in mind so just you always you always want to be maximizing your movement and your efficiency uh and you don't want to be limiting it and and you can do that with these big large infantry armies now there are times that you do want to be tight against you know keeping your bases near each other can help you um it can prevent uh, say someone from charging through your frontline screening unit into this backline unit that you were attempting to keep safe. Um, yeah. But as you mentioned, the 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 con to it is, if your front unit doesn't move as fast as this as the back unit, and you need the back unit to get somewhere, yeah, <laughs> you're you're out of luck. Yeah, and and it's all it's all relative. Uh, it, and this is why, and this is everything we've talked about. By the way, is if you mess up or if if the game doesn't go your way. It, it was 100% your fault, um, with the exception of maybe some of the advanced rules. But I don't think we really, I don't think we really talked about those or that those come into play too much. Um, so if your unit is in position to shoot at another unit uh, because you blocked yourself, or you know if you didn't quite measure properly 24 inches, uh, and so you don't have, you can't charge a unit that you wanted to charge at turn one, and then you left your your awesome Celestine out in the open or whatever have you. Uh, this is all on you. These are mistakes that you make, and this is honestly, this is where the you have the most control as a player um, about whether the game can be won or lost in your favor. And I, while this isn't related specifically to the movement phase, the this is the after a game, ask your opponent what you could have done differently and find ways that you could have moved differently because that's what you have control over. Yeah, if your shooting didn't work, well, sometimes the dice don't go in your favor. That, that's not super relevant. If you can find ways that you could have moved better to set yourself up for success, that's going to lead to you improving as a player. Yeah, and honestly, there's so much variation in the movement phase that, you know, chances are it, you, very, you probably didn't play a perfect game in the movement phase, right? Like, the, there's there's so much, there's so much, so many different factors. There's almost, especially when the, as the game progresses, there's almost infinite possibilities and infinite outcomes that you can potentially move uh and so there's almost always a point when you can look back at a moving phase and go like oh i didn't move optimally here i made the i moved the wrong way here i maybe i moved to shoot at one unit when i could shoot another or i uh, maybe i blocked myself a little bit or i put the wrong unit on an objective that happens a lot uh so so 
Mike's right. It's always very important to look back at your movement phase and and look at ways to improve it. And you can always do that with your opponent. You can always talk after your game. Unless I guess unless you've had a really bad, rough opponent um, or something, a bad experience. But those are, as I understand them, very, very rare. Uh, and most of the time, if you, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you probably play often enough to have multiple opponents. And hopefully one of them will be able to give you some sort of insight. Um, and you guys can talk about your game. Uh, so, so um, uh, uh, we talked about defensive armies and and how they can how they perform in the event phase and how you succeed with them with screens. We talked about offensive armies. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time about about balanced armies. Um, and honestly, if you look at the top lists now in on the September 2018 in Eighth Edition, a lot of the top lists have mixed. Or they have lists that can do a little bit of both. Um, even like Justin Curtis's Mortarian and Magnus list, you can look at Mortarian and Magnus as like pseudo screen units. There are these big giant things that get in your opponent's face. You, you don't want to go, like Mike said, if you're within 12 inches of Mortarian, you probably are going to die. So you don't want to go within 12 inches of them. They take up lots of space. They kill a lot. Uh, you, if you look at the Castellan list, the, the traditional Castellan boogeyman list, that one Nova uh, you have a, a Knight Castellan that can reach out and be dynamic and shoot things like like Brandon mentioned. You always want to be shooting and, and killing. And then you have this dynamic screen unit that can reach out and get into your opponent's face along with the Blood Angels captains in the back end. Um, so it's, it creates a very fast dynamic army that can either reach out and kill you if it needs to or it can sit back and play the gunline army if it needs to and, and win that way. Yeah, that list definitely feels like it leans more towards the slow defensive army but it does have the long range it generally has mortars so it's got a little bit of ignores line of sight with decent range and then it's got those blood angels captains that that give it that x factor of being able to reach out and touch most anywhere on the board um yeah. so it, it i agree it's it is a balanced army but it's it's definitely leaning, defensive, leaning defensive, and the balanced is the Blood Angels captains that can go into your opponent's deployment zone turn one, if they need to. Right. And if you if you're one of those players and you have one or the other army, if you have a fast army or a slower army, uh, and you're looking to add elements from the other style, uh, make sure that the elements you add are really really good at their job. Uh, so for example, if you're Eldar and you and you're playing like some sort of weird gunliney eldar army and you want to add some like fast unit don't don't add striking scorpions <laughs> probably not howling banshees either howling banshees are really good at getting out and into something's face and then dying immediately without actually hurting anything uh, but you've got is... harlequin bikes that you could add to eldar yep you've got the solitaire you know you could do an outrider with two squads of bikes and a solitaire and that's that's I mean... giving you some punch and keeping the shooting um, right. If we don't go with just the obvious ad shining spears. Yeah. If you want to talk yeah, yeah. about balanced armies, the whole Eldari keyword is extremely balanced because of oh, you can do Dark Eldar and Yanari and Eldari together. Um, for example, a common combination might be you take a unit of grotesques and you have a homunculus near them, leading them, so they're toughness six, and they have their four plus invulnerable because. Why would you take any other faction? I don't think I've seen it not be Prophets of Flesh. Yeah. I, 
And then you can take the relic on your homunculus that allows him to pick an enemy unit within six inches and make them fight last. So that is an incredibly tough counter-assault unit. And because of that relic, you don't really need as much of a screen, because even if your opponent charges you, you're still getting to fight before them. So it's quite a tough unit that's difficult to Bar deal with with barring melee. Barring them having a... If they also have a strike last, relic, spell, etc., um, that would counteract. You'd both be striking last, and then it's their turn, so they would get to pick before you. True. Important caveat. Yes. Um, so you'd need one of your own abilities to counter their ability that does the same thing. Um, yes. But barring that, most armies don't having access to that, it's very difficult to counter that unit efficiently. Uh, without it having to strike at you at least once. So you can definitely create a balanced army with Eldar. I know that everyone's familiar with Shining Spears or uh, Deep Striking Guardian Blobs or Yanari Dark Reapers, but the Grotesques plus Strike Last combo is definitely a very powerful but relatively slow for Eldar um, type combination. Yeah. Yeah, and, and other so so we spoke a lot about Eldar. Uh, other armies have access to to uh, you know units that that are actually succeed in both. Uh, Necrons, I know their wraiths wraiths although wraiths aren't as as good as they were in seventh edition. Wraiths are still pretty solid. Uh, destroyers being able to deep strike up and and blow things out of the water and kill things and be this durable hard to kill unit can can qualify as both a fast kill unit and a good support or a good screen support unit because they're tough and they have fly and you don't want to go near them you can use, use them as both uh tyranids obviously have a ton of really good screen units um but with gene stealers swarm lord uh they can reach out and kill things pretty well too um, well, and the the hive guard are reasonably efficient due to their shoot again stratagem so they're yeah you can make a you can include a component of your tyranid army that is slow shooting with screens. Um, I, I don't think the strongest one is just that, but having it as a part of the army is, is very viable. Right. Uh, Space Marines have, obviously they have the Imperium keyword, uh, but that aside, <laughs> the Space Marines, if you want to play pure Space Marines, which I know a ton of you do, uh, Space Marines always have access to the ability to deep strike. That's always going to be something that, that Space Marines have special, that Probably they have I the most of. You might be the only one who wants to play pure Space Marines anymore. You, you, you know what, Michael? My emails and my comment section <laughs> disagree with me entirely. Every, every time I talk about Space Marines, and then we go on to, oh, just Imperium, add this, I always get like one guy... Who says, "Hey Pablo, I I want to play pure I want to play pure Black Templars, okay? And you need to talk more about that. So this section, this minute long section, is for them and their <laughs> eyes only. You guys can mute yourselves for for one minute while while I pretend like the Space Marine Codex is amazing, okay? <laughs> but Space Marines have access to Scout Bikers, uh, which are really fast. They reach out, they kill things." Deep striking, obviously, and also Primaris Marines are, are actually a really good low key screen unit. They they can be really really tough, especially in cover. Uh, they in general, your opponent always feels kind of bad shooting at them because they're 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 not really doing anything a whole lot, but you need to kill them because they're like this ten man obsec unit of like twenty wounds. You're just like uh, so you, killing Primaris Marines is a chore. Um, and the two attacks but, each in melee makes them not as fun to trap in melee because you're taking more swings right. back at you. Right, and that, that's also that's also important too. And then the biggest thing I think that Space Marines have uh, compared to other 
compared to other factions, especially Blood Angels, it is really good characters. Uh, Space Marines just across the board have their characters just tend to be a little bit more hard hitting in close combat, uh, a little more durable with the reroll buffs. Uh, so Space Marine characters are always kind of gonna kind of be that evergreen. Like you can you can depend on Space Marine characters to to fill the roles you need um, in your Space Marine armies. Now we're done with Space Marines. Talk about talk about other things like like orcs. Um, I I wish this I wish the orc codex came out. We're not quite in October yet. Um, although the orc players in the future are listening to this, going, we've got all of that. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't not. know that there's really any other armies. I mean, Imperium and Eldari and Tyranids can make balanced armies. Um, Chaos doesn't really oh, have totally the did. shooting, in my opinion, to. It, they can make a balanced army. They can't go as heavily defensive. I think they have to be more aggressive than, than say, Imperium Actually, can, can do. Actually, I disagree, Michael. Uh, I think bears, you can yeah, go yeah. more defensive, but you have to be a defensive melee army. And the only way that really works is if your melee that hits hard is characters. So at that point, you're relying on your screens to not die and relying on either characters or sometimes even summoned reinforcements to do your heavy hitting. Hmm. I will say that, Mike, that if you're a Chaos Space Marine primary army with Chaos allies or Chaos Demon allies, I, I do agree with you. It's a lot harder to be durable. Um, although you probably could do it with Abaddon Fearless Cultist screens. Um, it, you wouldn't be Guardsmen, so you wouldn't have like you wouldn't be as fast or have orders or, or all that good stuff that Guardsmen get to, but you still have like 160 or whatever Fearless bodies that your opponent has to chew through. And Alpha Legion um, is no joke. Minus one to hit from more than 12 inches yeah, away is yeah. pretty good. But armies like Tau can't really do a, a balanced army, in my opinion. No, they don't have, they don't, they don't have real melee they're, units. They're missing mm. too many. Now, Tau can do a balanced army in terms of movement speeds. So you can have a relatively static firebase with Tau combined with mobile units and reserves. And I think with Tau, if you're going Tau, you kind of need to do that. If you don't have mobility as Tau, the wraiths go in the L-shaped ruins and you lose board control. So you need the mobility. But you're right, they don't have an obvious melee choice that's worth much. So they need to find other ways to push the L-shaped ruin in the middle of the board, and that way tends to be mobility and outflanking. Well, I guess my, my thought was, if there's that Necron ruin, they lose. Yeah, Necron ruins are very bad for Tau. Uh, uh, yeah, th- there's not much you can do around that. Uh, if you're a Tau player and you want to you wanna win in the movement phase against the Necron building, you, you really, really just want to start spreading out as fast as possible and covering everything but the Necron Bruin. So think of like... I mean, I guess if you like, can shoot off anything that can enter, if you kill all of your opponent's infantry, if that's feasible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's hard to do because they'll still get their characters and stuff in it. I think, like, if the, like, for example, if the ruins in the center of the board, I think if you, like, U shape board control so that you're controlling most of the board and can shoot anywhere on the board and kind of just, like, daring the guys to go out of the building, I think that's probably your best bet. You know, just give it a really wide berth. And be like, okay, you guys can have the building. We're just going to go behind you, kill your backfield. And then and then get line breaker and all that good stuff or whatever and kind of like you can have it the objective is yours. That's actually and then if you come out we'll kill a you. Very good point, Pablo. If you're playing a tower army, one of the ways you can defeat your opponent using the movement phase is to not put your army all in one location if you're facing someone who's using melee to defeat you. So yeah. that means if they go and eat your crisis suits, 
your fire warriors live. And if they eat your fire warriors, your crisis suits live because they're too far apart. Now, if you're playing someone like Michael, his bag of gene stealers might just be able to string out and touch them both. But if you're playing against Mortarian, he's not going to be able to touch two units that are 24 inches apart from each other. That's pretty funny. I just imagine like like Michael picking up his barrel of monkeys, but it's gene stealers, and then just kind of like stringing them out on the board until they're touching both units uh, 24 inches. Honestly, with, with Tyranids, I'm more likely to sit in the middle, slightly closer towards one of them, but within 12 of both, declare a charge on both, kill one, use the overrun stratagem to go next to the other one and fight it also and kill it. Yeah. And, and there, <laughs> That's Tyranids. There, there's a lot to be said. Like there, There's a whole other thing there, too, that Brandon just opened up. Uh, like, for example, if you if you do have two corners of the board um, where you're, put, you're forcing your opponent to pick one over the other, uh, make sure they're both properly screened and, and properly uh, uh, tri-point proof. Because if your opponent... Because the idea there is is that if your opponent forces all their resources into one, the other army on the other side of the corner will be able to shoot and kill your opponent's stuff that killed their team, their their fellow Tau, for example, because we're talking about Tau. But if your opponent, like let's say Mike Snyder, moves his gene stealers in there, kills a bunch of stuff, and then puts like something in combat that can't leave combat, and then the gene stealers can't get shot at because because they're within one inch of enemy models and technically in combat then you basically just gave your opponent half an army free right so if you're a tau player you don't put like your riptides and all three riptides like in one corner and then all your infantry in another corner because your opponent's going to go like hey look infantry where i can where i can take advantage of them or hey look riptides i'm just going to wipe out a thousand points of my army or my opponent's army quickly right so you 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 definitely want to, if you're going to do that strategy, I would suggest building your army in a way so that that strategy is viable um, and not not kind of like, you know, mixing and matching certain things. Basically, that's where we're going there. But that's good stuff. Uh, so uh, we, we talked about balanced armies. Um, I, th- I think we, we, we came back on track in the movement phase. Uh, it's, we're at an hour and a half, so I kind of want to get your guys' last thoughts in. Um, and... I wanted to do this at the end of every episode in this series. Uh, and that's going to be tips and tricks, rapid fire things that you guys can tell people. Uh, so if you guys are listening to this, uh, if you're not driving, if you're sitting down at work or, or in school or something, uh, take out a quick notepad, something, make mental notes. Um, but basically we're just going to mention quick tips and tricks uh, or, or, uh, you know, uh, bad habits or whatever that you guys can work on to improve just rapid fire. Uh, so I'm going to start it off. Uh, the first thing is, is you're always you always want to look at your units where their eye level is when you're moving um, for for uh, uh, line of sight. It's it's just when I'm moving my guys, I always like to get down to their level and see what their kind of point of view is of of the of the battlefield. And and the reason why that's important is you get to set up your models for future shooting. Uh, if you have, if your example, if you have your opponent's knight army or knight model and, and you know that he can't quite see if he moves a certain way um make sure to stay out of his range just get down to that knight's level and look at all the potential potential places that knight can go and then look to see what they can't shoot where their their where their blind spots are essentially yeah if your opponent's nice enough to let you you know you can you can even pre-measure out exactly with how far can that knight go pick up the model move it over there assuming you marked where its existing position is mm-hmm. um, and see what that line of sight looks like to the left of the building and to the right of the building and then maybe you'll find that little triangle up against the building that you can you know hide something in that 
that you know will will keep something important alive. Yeah, and you you always want to be doing that during the movement phase because if you start doing it during the shooting phase, it's too late. And if you see that you've made a mistake, then tough. You, yeah, then you live with it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Mike Brandon. I mean, the biggest thing to me is always just going to be talking through what your intention is um, ahead of time before moving models. You know, you measure out, okay, I know I'm 24 inches from you and I move 20, which means we're four inches away, so it's a three-inch charge. Okay, now we've talked about it. I'm going to go ahead and move my bag of gene sealers forward because we don't, I don't need to be precise anymore because we know what, what the distances are. Yeah. Uh, Brandon? Um I'd go with uh, the importance of having a plan for your army, even before you put models on the table. So when Michael was talking about, I can deploy my gene stealers very defensively because they're going to be expected to move 40 inches on turn one. That's a really important plan to have. So with any list that you make, try and consider everything that could possibly go wrong and still have a plan to play even when the dice are betraying you. So for example, if your army relies on going first, have a plan if you go second. If your army really would rather go second, have a plan to go first. Simple things like that will help you remain calm and uh, continue to play at your best through the whole game. Yeah. Uh, well, another thing I want to add is, is when you're moving, it's always important to keep moving models that aren't doing anything no matter what. Even if even if they're irrelevant to the game and you know you don't need them, uh, you know it, it's you hear this a lot in sports. It's kind of, it's kind of like a, a, the sports thing to say, and that's um, playing to the last minute, playing to the final bell, etc. The same thing is true in 40k. Um, you know, a lot of times if dice don't go your way, you might need, you might need to hold a specific objective that you would have held if you'd started moving your guardsmen like three turns ago. Uh, so, so you always want to, you always kind of want to keep continuously keep moving units towards specific objectives uh, assuming that that you need them yeah. to like basically plan for failure i'm sending right. this unit forward and it should hold that but i'm going to send this other unit i'm going to start moving this other unit up as well as, as well. a backup yeah ex exactly and and this is that's actually how you win in the late game which which um it, since we're using chess clocks a lot now uh, a lot of players are starting to see more of there's this thing called turn six uh and sometimes you always you want to be you want to be in position to win on turn six as well as turn one and you do that by consistently always moving units and you should always just get into the habit of it too uh i've had a problem i i personally have a problem with leaving guard units and leaving obsec units just in a ruin and just forgetting about them the whole game um when when like uh a character could fulfill the same role um so what i've been starting to doing to kind of break myself out of that habit is i look at a guardsman guard unit and i go okay you you're going to hit my opponent's back edge that's your job now i don't need you the rest of the game you're not going to do anything so go get them boys and then i will just always kind of move them along as i'm going uh, i don't necessarily depend a whole lot out of i don't i don't rely them on them to win me the game but i i never forget to move them just to see how far i can get them to go or or maybe i can make them look like they're going somewhere important so my opponent shoots them i don't know whatever but you always want to be moving stuff that's that's the tip there all right mike brandon it's been fun yeah, thanks for having us on, Pablo. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, guys. Well, that's it. If there's anything else that we missed, guys, uh, don't be afraid to leave it in the comment section or email me if you enjoyed this episode. Also, share it with your friends. 
we, we talked a lot about concepts and movement phase stuff. Um, I'm sure we didn't, we didn't get everything, but I know we got enough to, for people listening to this to get at least something. Uh, so, you know, share this, share this, uh, episode with your friends, um, you know, hype bookmark it, do whatever you can. Um, it, it's always very important to, to show good movement phase, um, not etiquette movement phase, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Discipline. Discipline. That that's a good. That's that's similar. Uh, to move, show a good movement phase, discipline and habits, um, because that's kind of where you set the tone for the game, and, and where the rest of the game goes. So if you're if you're a very active player and you get into a rhythm, the movement phase is where you get into the room. You move your guys. You go back and forth. You're bouncing up and down. If you're a very rigid mechanical player, uh, you know you set your you set your tone early by moving exactly six inches and making your opponent moves exactly six inches. If you're a very talkative, communicative player, the move phase is where you set up the communication between you and your opponent, where you set up a good report, etc., etc. The movement phase is the beginning of the game. It, it's where you set the tone for your game, and it's where, uh, the, honestly, in my opinion, it's where the game is won and lost um, by good between good and bad players. So it's very important. Share this episode if you liked it. Also, don't forget to go to FrontlineGaming.org where you can find FLG mats, ITC terrain, like the robot wrestling match box that we talked about, the Ruin. We do sell that at ITC terrain. It's called Robot City. So the Robot City terrain, check that out. You can also go to the secondhand store and all that good stuff, FrontlineGaming.org. We're the best. As always, this has been PewDiePob. Thank you very much, Mike and Brandon, for coming on. Uh, they, uh, they came... They, they, they're my relentless D teammates and I, I've been wanting to have them on for a while. Uh, these are the guys I go to to tournaments and we always have these kind of long conversations about the game and hopefully that kind of came out in this episode uh, and have a good one. Bye. See ya.